and cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of Lines Led by Donkeys podcast. We are doing a uh, donkey reading series again. Uh, with me today is Martin Pfeiffer. Again. Hey! Uh, because when I'm talking anything to do with nukes, I have to talk to the only person who will talk to me about nukes. Uh, Am I really the only one? You're the only one I know, so yes. Okay. <laughs> you're the I, only I have some names for you after this. That, that I know. Um, so, going into this episode, uh, I have to explain that for whatever reason, my mic was not working, and I had to uh, record this on my laptop's internal mic. So, if it sounds bad, blame Mac. Uh <laughs> So, we're doing the reading series on uh, the War on the Rocks article uh, called America Needs a Dead Hand uh, by Adam Lothar and Curtis McGiffin. Um, Now, full disclosure, uh, I did, or my publisher did uh, solicit War on the Rocks for a review of my book, which they did not do. Uh, (laughs) So, anything I say hateful about War on the Rocks has nothing to do with that today. It's all about this article. Uh, Another thing is Adam Lothar has a pretty checkered past, and we will not be talking about that for obvious reasons. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Uh, so I saw this article about uh, America needing a dead hand, and I knew it was kind of batshit insane, but I didn't know the proper context and way to explain how foolish it is, which is why I immediately reached out to you. (laughs) The person filled with bitterness and hatred about the many petty things we did in the past that were uh, bad ideas. Yes. Yes. Always happy. Yeah. It's like rust coal sitting down at at a, at like the sands nuclear arse, like the time is a flat circle. Let's build dead hand. Um, Right. Everything old is new. Again and again, and it does. It really does feel like the '80s, um, which, as I told you, like I don't even remember because I was a kid. But you know, I read, um, unlike some people, apparently. <laughs> you know, I, and I'm forced to agree with you. I mean, I was born in '88, so I don't remember the '80s. But reading about the '80s and like the attitude that came from the Cold War and the nuclear arms race and everything like we're kind of getting back to that where everybody is talking about, Oh, we need to up our nuclear arsenal. We need to spend more money on this. Uh, Russia's rolling out new nukes, stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, I feel like we've done this before. Oh, several times. Um, you know, there's, there's this sort of right. Imaginary of threat that gets invoked. Um, and I would, I would even argue that historically it's not even a new arms race. It's just, we kind of had a pause in the old one. Um, but we certainly never like got out of it or got out of the basic roots, you know, um, basic rules of the game. I mean, which is why we have 2000 hedge nuclear warheads about six point something miles away from me. Uh, and of course the Russians keep a bunch of their, um, battlefield and other i'm trying to think of what term to you you know non i don't want to say not non non-long-range ballistic missile there we go uh they kept some nukes for things like um air defense and any submarine warfare so like what are traditionally called tactical but i'm not a you know i don't believe in that concept of tactical nuclear weapons like there's no such thing as a tactical nuke 
I mean, that's kind of my, you know, back in the day, the argument, one of the arguments was that, um, you know, the ocean, uh, an encounter at sea with the Soviet Union was a potential nuclear flashpoint because low civilian casualties, high stakes, you don't want to lose your carrier to a submarine. So, you know, break out the nuclear duct charges. And that's how the nuclear war could start. I love that the idea that there's nuclear death charges and nuclear oh, yes. anti-air missiles, like that whole idea is just oh, yeah. insane. In fact, the, the United States, the Soviet Union, as far as I know, did not deploy it, although they may have developed one. But the United States had the Genie, which was the air to, unguided air-to-air <laughs> nuclear-tipped missile. I'll just fling a nuke straight yeah. up into the air, see what happens. Well, no, it was, it was fired from a plane, so the pilot had to do some really extreme uh maneuvers yeah no it was, a t- it was not a great idea uh, but we did it it was the 50s and 60s and it was kind of like okay well let's put a nuke on it great idea bob yeah and it seems in many ways like we're kind of as you pointed out getting back to that in many ways if you remember uh elon musk recently talked about nuking <laughs> mars uh which is not what we're talking i just feel like i had to bring that up because it's yeah. why not um my friend Taylor Genovese and I actually have a two-part blog post on that called uh, To Peace, because the only alternative is, I think, extinction. It's, it's quoting from an advertisement. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, that was, that was special. I mean, at least when um, our nuclear tech overlords actually are allowed to develop their own personally owned nuclear missiles, we won't have to wait for the climate apocalypse anymore. They'll kill us all before it happens. Fingers crossed. I mean, this is why I live near an air base. Uh, I wish I lived a little bit closer. But then it has to be with the Russians, not the Chinese, because the Russians have the warheads to spare. I mean, there's all these, you know. On the other hand, give it a decade. It's like every Tom Clancy novel ever, ever written. Like, oh, the Russians lost track of their nukes, and now Ben Affleck, whoever, has to come run after it again. So I will say I read uh, The Sum of All Fears, and I think that's actually where I stopped with Clancy. And I did read Red Storm Rising. And even as a kid, I was like, really? Really? You're going to have a conventional invasion in Europe that doesn't go nuclear? Yeah, that just doesn't work. I mean, we've seen it happen, but like, I guess you could consider that like limited invasions. But also, Russia likes to pick on people who who don't have nukes, same as us. I mean... Ukraine, we can we can have an argument about whether or not nuclear weapons would have still, um, but that's another topic. Uh, so today, though, dead hands. We're, we're talking about the dead hand and um, and the history of America's attempts to come up with a failed deadly system, which is a, a word or a phrase that I did not know existed before today. <laughs> oh yeah. So normally, right, fail safe. You know if the train engineer has a heart attack while the train is going and they slump to the ground. They have that little lanyard thingy that pulls the key out. Then the train will stop. Fail safe, right? Fail deadly. No, this way, when the engineer has a heart attack, the whole train derails and kills everybody. Um, <laughs> oh, conductor's down. Train just explodes in the middle of the town. Yep. Yep. Like, oh, well, fail deadly system went off. There goes another one. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's an interesting thing and theoretically the motivation behind a failed deadly system articulated to a nuclear arsenal is that you ensure retaliation and retaliation is theoretically the basis of deterrence right um so the u.s uh like i assume many other states with nuclear weapons um we're really worried quite a bit 
if you look through the declassified documents and the histories about how to make sure that if the president um, needs to, wants to, decides to fire off some nuclear weapons, they're going to be able to do so. The U.S. has not always shown what I would consider to be the best judgment in terms of how it arranged that. And um, that includes in the realm, I would argue, of threat assessment. So I would say that U.S. worries about decapitation by the Soviet Union during the 1950s were just vastly overstated, for example. Right. The, the bomber gap, the missile gap, the idea that they could decapitate United States leadership and nuclear forces somehow like uh, it was just kind of a pipe dream in the 50s and uh, really 60s and 70s. Um, so one of the first things the U.S. did. So Eisenhower, you know, he had, he had some ideas. Um, one thing he did was pre-delegate nuclear weapons launch authority to certain combatant commanders, right? So NORAD got it uh, in case they had to use nukes to defend American airspace. Um, uh, Supreme, Supreme Allied Commander, Europe, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, and then they were able to pre-delegate their launch authority to a certain extent um, so that even if the president were killed, the military would still have the authority. Of course, right, there's a distinction between authority and ability. And the military military does not need um, the civilian leadership to provide the ability to use nuclear weapons, which is always a point worth remembering. Um, really? So, oh, yeah. I mean, how, you know, because that leaves you open to exactly that thing. What if they kill the president and the vice president? That's fair. Or, or what happens when Bill Clinton loses his um, card or Carter sends it to the cleaners or President um, Reagan is shot and it becomes evidence at the FBI? Yeah, didn't uh, Clinton like accidentally ditch the guy that had the nuclear football at a party or something like that? It's happened a couple. Of, you know, it happens. It's, it's hard. Uh, Johnson at one point was on a different plane for, you know, they were a little, maybe a little bit looser about it back then, you know, and as far, uh, if I remember correctly, the vice president hasn't always had um, a football either. So, you know, the nuclear president's emergency satchel. So the, the fears about decapitation um, have waxed and waned over the years. Kennedy got, or Johnson, I guess it would have been finally, I think it was him got rid of um, project furtherance or operation furtherance, which was, I mean, it was a fucking doomsday plan where, like, if a nuke went off and the president were killed and you didn't know who did it, you know, or you couldn't find the president, you just launch everything. And everybody? <laughs> yeah. No, literally, China was in there. Like, it didn't matter if China was in you know? I mean, that was the PSYOP in the, in, the, in the early 60s. The PSYOP had one plan. It included just nuke everything. Um, it goes down we're taking the entire goddamn world with us no that's pretty much you know well of course what's funny right you've seen dr strangelove of course of course right you know the whole point of a doomsday machine is lost if you keep it a secret why didn't you tell the world <laughs> and cheryl rofer one of my good friends is um and you know a very brilliant person has had um some really good thoughts on why you might not tell the world that you have a doomsday machine um but it is also striking that the United States, as far as I'm aware, you know, never told the Soviets, like, hey, if you nuke us, not going to get away with it, right? We have this plan, we have this doomsday machine, um, you know, and similarly, it doesn't seem that the Soviets told the U.S. about their dead hand system when they developed it. It just kind of leaked out, right? Uh, that's how I, yeah, kind of after the war, if I remember correctly, Cold War ended. 
And that um, makes sense. There's a lot of people, uh, a lot of former high-ranking officers within the Soviet military who uh, really wanted money and were very, very handsomely paid for for divulging information to NATO powers. Yeah, uh, you know that's the game. Um, and this also, by the way, is you know one reason why we worry about extended government shutdowns causing financial difficulties for people with uh, security clearances. But whatever. Yeah, if I if I was not paying members of my government, I would definitely make sure all the people who are in control of my nuclear weapons and know about them were handsomely paid. Uh, you know, I'm going to uh, assume that didn't happen. <laughs> Uh, DOE was funded during the last one, uh, I know, because I was still getting responses to my FOIA requests. Um, but, yeah. No, no so, Rick Perry's department was still getting funded. <laughs> I, it horrifies me that we're at the point where I'm like, well, uh, Rick Perry actually isn't doing an awful job or a terrible job. Like, what hell have I descended into? Oh, God. So I think it's important, though, to, um, to insert... Uh, you know, a definition of what we mean by the Soviet dead hand system, because the article, I think, in this, let me know if my reading of this is wrong, kind of presents it as like the Russians already may have what the article is proposing, right? This sort of automated retaliatory response system. That, that's what they make it sound like. They make it sound like they've had it since the 80s. Yeah, no, that's bullshit. Um, and, and David Hoffman in his book is very, paints a very, diff, uh, you know, very clear picture um, the details of which may vary, but you can also look at um, Yarnovich's work, uh, Nuclear Command, Control, and Cooperation, or Pavel Podvig has, I believe, um, written pretty pretty heftily on perimeter, right? You know, it appears to have been that the Soviet leadership could um, grant launch authority to and launchability to officers in super-hardened structures, who, you know, upon a certain series of signs, loss of leadership, seismic readings, etc., would then be able to fire off um, communication rockets that would then fire the missiles. So it's actually not, in many ways, not that different from the U.S. looking glass or uh, Takamo take command, take charge and move out system where you would have a plane flying over the United States, sending out a launch order to the um, emergency rocket communication system, which would then launch a Minuteman 2 ICBM across the continent that would send out launch order. You know, we got rid of that in the 90s, by the way. Oh, OK, as the, I say, I have never heard of that. That is terrifying. The emergency rocket system, not the ability to launch the ICBMs from the plane. You can still do that um, under certain circumstances. And that's. So the, the, it seems like the authors of this article are using the Russian dead hand or perimeter system to be everything or anything they want it to be. It's sort of a generic threat. And I, you know, other than the potential issue of it going off accidentally, I don't know that a dead hand system, per, right? A secured retaliatory ability is theoretically really stabilizing, right? Supposedly, um, I think everybody having a doomsday weapon is the most stabilizing thing to have in the world. Uh, no, I don't think so either. I'm just saying that if the if the Russians, in fact, did have a dead hand doomsday machine, like who gives a fuck? Um, that just means you don't nuke them. Which, yeah, which is why we also, have, you know, um, one of the other things that really drives me batshit about that piece is the way that the authors discuss theoretical potential options right and yeah so what was the first one 
So the first one they come up with is um, an algorithm or AI-based system. (laughs) Well, that was number four. So just for the the listeners, right? So the authors are arguing that the United States faces um, uh, such a compression of time in regarding nuclear weapons that decision makers can no longer direct um, forces in any manner and that we should consider constructing uh, potentially um, an artificial intelligence system as either a decision aid or actually give it nukes itself, which is a shit idea, the second part. Yeah, I, I mean, it. the idea of not only putting uh, some kind of hypothetical advanced artificial intelligence, which we do not have, yeah, I mean, no, no, you you don't need to worry about whether or not it actually exists. The point is, do we need it? Right. I mean, the idea of giving of developing that, which is, has ethical loopholes and you know moral quandaries of itself, and then giving it doomsday weapons is literally the fucking plot line of Terminator. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, <laughs> and they note that. And Colossus. I mean, we have, look, you know, as an anthropologist reading post-Holocaust nuclear war novels, let me tell you, this is not an uncommon, like, thing. Everybody knows what a terrible idea it is. Um, but the worst I, part I, is, is they, yeah. note it, they note that. Like, this is yep. from, like, the third or fourth paragraphs. Is, Admittedly, such suggestion will generate comparisons to Dr. Strangelove's Doomsday yep. Machine, War Games Operation war, uh, Plan Response, and Terminator Skynet. Which is the trifecta. If your idea reminds you of all three of those movies, you should probably stop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, uh, okay, guys, it seems like we accidentally created the apocalypse here. Mm, let's yeah. just keep this ball rolling. And there are, so one, you know, there are potential ways that if we did desire to pursue a certain system, which I don't think is needed, right? I don't see that. Um, air breathing, you know, land attack, um, hypersonic cruise missiles or stealth cruise missiles or boost glide vehicles. I don't see that any of that technology at this point or in the near future is going to so shift the dynamics of nuclear war large scale um, that that's a thing we need to really like deal with beyond what we're already doing in terms of or, you know, what we will continue doing in terms of nuclear command and control. I mean, these are not things that we've just like, like, it's not like just the president can do it, you know? Um, In fact, I would argue that in the event of a nuclear war, you're probably going to end up having somebody who doesn't have constitutional authority ordering the launch of nuclear weapons. But at that point, fuck it. You're in a nuclear war, right? Right. I could see that happening as well. Yeah. Um, You know, the United States uh, ballistic missile submarines didn't require outside information to launch their missiles until the 1990s. So if the U.S. government were wiped out, um, you still had, you know, a couple dozen missile submarines out there with enough firepower to destroy uh, most of Eastern Europe, Asia, China, um, Russia, etc. I know this never happened in the United States, but um, I'm not entirely sure what the story was, but I believe it was a Russian submarine. During the Cuban Missile Crisis. Very nearly ended the world, and it came down to a vote, correct? Yeah, uh, Arkhipov, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, it required three people to assent. Uh, I believe it was the captain who was like, okay, they're dropping depth charges on us. The war has already begun. So 
decision-making under conditions of uncertainty, which I would note is the same situation that the authors of this piece are theoretically trying to respond to, um, except that they're just shifting the problem of decision-making under circumstances of uncertainty to some sort of mythical genie AI that doesn't exist, um, but whatever. Uh, but yeah, so it came down to Archipel saying, no, not a good idea. Let's, let's surface and see what's going down. So yeah, there, there are multiple examples of where nuclear deterrence has failed partly or come very close to failing. Um, but theoretically, the, you know, your AI machine won't make those mistakes that silly humans do. So the one, the one thing that saved the situation, like the, the, it, was one, it was one human, and that's not the first time that happened in the Soviet Union – uh, that's the most clear cut case. The other example, like, um, Petrov, he wasn't in the chain of command to fire, um, sort of thing, but there was also like Abel Archer in 1983. And, oh, I always forget the guy's name, uh, who seeing that the, the Soviets were starting to move toward a different posture with their air units did not respond because he figured, Ooh, we get into an escalation spiral here. Um, and that helped calm things down. And those, I'm sure there are a couple that are still classified too. <laughs> oh, I would imagine. I would imagine for every one we know about, there's at least two we don't. Yeah, I mean, these are not things we like to admit to. Yeah, uh, and so like in those situations, with uh, a lot of trained people thinking that oh shit, the world's about to end, and the only thing that stopped them was human intervention, like. If we would have had some kind of fucking Facebook T-shirt creating algorithm in charge of of our nuclear missiles, we would all be dead. Yeah, no, the the captain thought that they were being depth charged, right? It, and the temperature was hot. I mean, yeah. So you know, that's always also one of the worrisome things is that no matter how strictly you set the parameters of your doomsday machine, it's going to have false positives. This is. Almost certainly. So the United States at one point had what was called the bomb alarm or bomb alert system. And it was a network of uh, bang meters. Um, so they detect the double pulse of an atmospheric nuclear detonation. And we put them around a couple cities and some other places. Yeah, they would false positive, not infrequently. Um, you know, and so you just check like, OK, are they still say, OK, good. You know, Chicago wasn't actually nuked. Just flick the light a couple times. Um, but we had one at the Thule Greenland Air Force Base. And as um, Scott Sagan points out in his book, The Limits of Safety, had one of those Mark 28 weapons actually detonated, it would have looked a lot like a Soviet attack because it would have been destroyed by a nuclear weapon. The bomb alert system probably would have told us. And we expected the Soviets to attack our early warning system as a precursor. Uh, and as Sagan points out like that, could have gone really, really bad. Uh, similarly, in the 1980s, um, excuse me, in 1980, there were a series of computer chip failures that showed resulted in Soviet missiles shown being launched at the U.S. Um, I think it was 1979. Uh, Carter's National Security Advisor got woken up at like three in the morning because incoming Soviet attack. And it was like, nope, somebody just put in the wrong training tape. Oh shit! <laughs> so I mean, you know, and he. Try to launch the bomber, you know, like, okay. Uh, so accidents happen. Uh, and the idea that AI will somehow, uh, it's very difficult for me to comprehend the, the logical train of thought that says, okay, well, AI will somehow make us safer here. 
at least with the Soviet system, as, as I understand it, right? It still passed it off to people who were in a, re, you know, who weren't going to be theoretically killed in the nuclear attack, right? So you still left the decision to people making informed judgments. Um, it was a delegation of authority, just like the U.S. does, uh, arguably. Um, the idea of having a system autonomously decide is hair-raising. And as you pointed out, at least three bad, you know, blockbuster movies worth a bad idea. And, like, you know your idea is bad when you have to note that science fiction authors raise yeah. a very good point on your doomsday weapon. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't think that this conversation, and in fact, the authors make it clear that they're also drawing inspiration from the conversations around the use of artificial intelligence for target identification, uh, tasking, autonomous weapons, right? And we see that there continues that's absolutely to be terrifying. Yes, right. Um, and, you know, if you ask me what I think the probability of the United States signing a treaty that bans giving computers the ability to make life or death decisions, um, I'd put it at close to zero. Well, it is zero for this administration yeah. um, and very low for future ones, which is fucked. Yeah. Um, like we shouldn't have to like have an argument like, guys, we shouldn't have AI killing people. Yes. And yet, <laughs> uh, this is where we're going. Um, and so it, it's an outgrowth of that. And it's also, I think, an outgrowth of, forgive me, right? Carol Cohn and her discussion of techno-strategic abstraction and the way that we remove these theoretical scenarios from any actual grounding in real-world circumstances or history. And so that's how the authors are able to say, like, well, we could, you know, orient toward a secure retaliatory posture. And I'm like, what, you know, what the fuck do you think those submarines are there for, bucko? Um, scratch your ass. Like, I mean, you could also use them in a first strike role if you wanted to. Uh, but certainly they're not vulnerable in the same way that at this point it's land-based missiles and bombers are, which the authors discuss. They don't discuss submarines. Um, that's really telling in terms of their awareness of where the massive gaping hole in their argument is, or at least one of them. It's a pretty basic understanding of the nuclear triad. And they, I mean, they swing you know, and I miss on term, it. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, but like still that, that's like the yeah. most. Yep. It's it, common. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty standard rhetorical move. It seems in my experience to kind of like either ignore the subs or just be like, well, one day the ocean may be transparent. <laughs> one day we'll fucking make the ocean burning hot lava and we won't be able to use our subs i mean um, that too right yeah and you know another thing it, it keeps coming back to like well we don't have the ai now but we did teach a ai how to play go which is like a board game kind of like chess i yeah. guess it's considered incredibly hard to learn uh, I don't know how to play it, but uh, a robot is apparently an AI rather is the world champion of go yeah. right, right now. And they're like, well, we taught it go. We can teach it nukes like that. Come on, man. Yeah. So, you know, and we encountered this again in the 80s with discussions about SDI, which was an expert system, not even AI. So I'm not a computer scientist, but anthropologist people. Um but, you know, my understanding right, an expert system is one that doesn't have the, like, neural nets, self-learning, right? It matches criteria and so on. Um, but we had a lot of these arguments regarding, like, the foolishness of this idea and this approach. Then, along with the fact that you can never test it in any meaningful manner, a system that complex is strategic defense. Um, you know, and, is, like, how do you test your... 
AI doomsday machine. <laughs> yeah, um, and you'd have to do some kind of war game at best. And the U.S. has a wonderful history of kind of gaming its own war game so they can't possibly lose. Everybody. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, the one glowing example is a Millennium Challenge 2002, where like they had a whole bunch of hypothetical weapons that were told they were totally going to have in five years, oh, yeah. uh, and they based the entire war game off those weapons' capabilities, which they made sure won. So, like, yeah, these, these weapons were great. Let's develop them, uh, and they either did not function or they sucked when they came out. Yeah. I mean, ballistic missile defense is a great example of the sort of the technology, you know, we can get the technology there and, you know, deployment while developing, while testing. And when you look at the tests, uh, even the ICBM class target was still going slower than one fired by the North Koreans would be going, you know, the test. I mean, of course, you rig your ballistic missile test. And that's, you know, a more deeper issue about defense procurement and funding and Congress and stuff. Um, then I can get it. You know, I just deal with nukes. I, <laughs> some stuff's too big for me, but right. When you've created an incentive to game the, I mean, it's always been there. Uh, we did the same stuff with nuclear weapons procurement that, that I'm most familiar with in the fifties and sixties where, you know, why did we end up with Thor and, um, Jupiter. Well, the U, the Army and the Air Force didn't want to use each other's missiles. Okay. Um, Perfect. Cool. Perfect. Yep. So we had two shitty intermediate range ballistic missiles instead. Of one. <laughs> uh, another idea that this article comes up with is a robust second strike, which uh, so like what uh, the uh. thing that it likes to talk about for this robust second strike to be a thing is. Uh, is like we've talked about before is surviving and winning a nuclear war, which is like, okay, mm-hmm. well, we're going to lose half our population. What do we do now? <laughs> yep. No, it, there are hints of like second strike counterforce there. Uh, again, it's rooted in the eighties. The idea I personally, um, and I think that this is not an irrational judgment from thinking through the ways that things will probably go and the difficulties of operating in a nuclear environment. Let's also point out that the authors completely ignore the fact that you'll probably be in be if you're at the point where you have to be using, you know, nuclear weapons, you're probably already in uh, dealing with a degraded comms environment where you're facing jamming or destruction of satellites or something like that, which is really interesting because they portray it as being like, you know, you go from this thick full line of communication all the way down to like this tiny line of communication, but you really need the full thick line the whole time so you can, you know, flexibly direct your nuclear forces. It's like, that's a fucking pipe dream. Yeah. Um, after a couple of duck dozen detonations, like good luck, Just, you know, good <laughs> luck. Um, for one thing, you're probably not going to be able to find, uh, you know, unless as part of your strategic warning, you've secreted the vice president somewhere, but the Soviet, the, excuse me, the Russians know where the federal, most of the federal relocation points are. Um, if they did, they've was, been pretty, uh, pretty lax in their, in their job, I would think. Yeah. I mean, look, during the Cold War, the Soviets knew about the congressional relocation point, even though it was theoretically top secret, it was going to get nuked. There wasn't going to be a Congress. Um, continuity of government. Oh, no. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? I, do, I do not support nuking Congress. I feel like I need to say that now. <laughs> I mean, 
Yes. Um, <clears throat> the Greenbrier. I mean, what a great place to die, right? Right. Isn't that like but, a tourist spot now? Yep. I want to go. I would totally go. That would be awesome. Yeah. So continuity of government. Is it about continuity of government or is it about continuity of a chain of command? Um, and what do you want that chain of command to be able to do? And for a while now, we've been saying that we want that chain of command to be able to flexibly direct nuclear forces, right? That's not impossible up to a certain point. But I mean, once you're, I would argue, once you start talking dozens, 100, 200, 300, 400, 700 warheads, like, what is there to direct? Yeah. I mean, there's no communication lines that are going to survive the planet being turned to glass. I mean, so the other, well, most, a chunk of the Northern Hemisphere. Europe is fucked. <laughs> like, <laughs> Sucks to you, know, you guys. Yeah, no, it, it, that's great. Every town being a kiloton apart is wonderful because uh, <laughs> it means you die quick. Um, <laughs> oh, thank God for the hot embrace of nuclear hellfire. <laughs> right, oh, God, these days, uh, it seems really tempting sometimes. Um, and sure, U.S. comm satellites, you know, ultra high frequency and such can communicate in um, a nuclear environment. Are they still going to be around, you know, at the same time that we're talking about anti-satellite capabilities of China and Russia? Oh, yeah. I don't. You know, so or even with bombers, um, this is one thing that drives me a little annoyed. You'll see, right, one of the things said about bombers is they're good because you can use them to signal. You can launch them and call them back. And even with ultra high frequency uplinks or whatever, like that's really optimistic because if somebody starts taking out your sats or is jamming your comms or nukes your whatever or your several whatever is like and you want to call back your bombers and they've still got six hours to get to their targets you may not be able to like generally when you order the use of nukes, you should probably plan on it being, that's it. You did that, you know? Um, so there have always, sorry, that was long and rambling, but the whole point being that like, there's always been a lot of certainty and I'm not sure that you can build your way out of it at any cost we're willing to pay about us command and control. I got one that's even worse than that. The other option, preemptive strikes. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Starting Not nuclear war. Yes. Um, which, you know, for a while uh, has sometimes been our strategy. And I assume it's probably our strategy against the North Koreans, if I had to bet. Uh, oh, I would assume so. Yeah. You know, if you see them. But that's a different situation where you can observe them through whatever national technical means or whatever, you know, you'd, you'd have theoretically some strategic warning tensions are getting up. Like very few people are just going to whip their missiles out and nuke you for the hell of it. I mean, uh, this whole thing is, is, well, I know we've already talked about this before, but their, their second option of a, uh, of a preemptive strike is the whole point that dead hand exists. Yes. Dead right? hand doesn't Russians, need to exist. If you don't do a preemptive fucking strike. Yep. If the Russians already have one, then preemptively nuking them is going to set it off. Yeah, so just don't do that. (laughs) Right. Uh, But, you know, escalate to de-escalate. And, you know, this is where it also gets fun. Like, well, what if the Russians say, hey, we've turned on our dead hand. If you you use a W-76-2 against our homeland, it'll fire automatically. I mean, I really doubt that that would happen. But, you know, so there is there are potential. you know, there are potential ways that like you could use a theoretically irrevocable, irrevocable dead hand system as leverage, but you'd literally like, (laughs) that's such a fucking bad idea. You just shouldn't, Um, (laughs) you know, like saying like, Hey, if you do X, my computer is going to destroy the world. Like, okay, just turn it off. You know, no one's going to believe that you can't, uh, you'd have to be 
Who would do, who would build such a thing? This, this is a Dwight Schrute moment from The Office. Have you ever seen The it Office? Is. He he makes the computer yeah. program to immediately send all their errors to management if they continue to make them. Oh, I didn't see that one, but yeah, right. <laughs> you know, or uh, so um, I forget his Twitter handle. He's on Twitter, and he uh, he ended up in the Guardian because he had set up a, a fail safe on his computer that, in the event he didn't check in after a certain period of time, it would delete all his local files and send encrypted copies of his research to trusted friends. Right? Guess who got pneumonia? Oh, ended no. up in the hospital. <laughs> yeah. So his dead hand triggered. Um, then he says he's redesigned it and changed some things, you know, but <laughs> I mean, right. Or, you know, if you, if you put all of your criminal contacts in the safety deposit box and then you're in a car accident and you're out of it for a week and your lawyer sends it to the police, you know, these are, there are reasons we don't do this on a regular basis. It's like the, there's something else where someone had something implanted in their heart. And if their heart stopped beating, they oh, yeah. launch nukes. That was, um, so that's also been explored as a sci-fi plot, uh, with implantation of electrodes in the forehead. What book is that? Is that neuromant? No, that's, um, all the nerds. I can like hear them screaming at me now for not having this right off the, the, uh, it's one of the original cyberpunk things, but also it was suggested that you could reduce the risk of nuclear war by implanting the launch codes next to the heart of a volunteer. And then the president would have to carve them out to launch. I have um, heard that one. I think it's yeah. fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Well, it only, worked. I mean, do you think that it would have prevented Cheney or our current, um, you know, I think it actually would have had a, uh, a, an opposite effect if Dick Cheney was in charge. Like, yeah, he would just right. launch nukes he felt like killing yeah. someone. Right? Like, oh, you're not, exactly, you know. I haven't um, killed anybody in weeks. Get right? Steve in here. Uh, I'm down to shooting my best friend in the face with birdshot. <laughs> which was terrible. But, um, yeah. So, it, you know, this is a thing that's been explored in sci-fi, in previous studies, and to quote Dr. Strangelove, right, most people have determined, paraphrase, that this is not a practical deterrent for reasons which at this moment must seem all too obvious <laughs> um, when it's actually, you know, the world ending. And if you ever read um, Level 7, you know, the world ending war there is triggered because of an accidental launch that triggers someone else's automatic response which causes a, a um, escalation spiral between the computers. If you look at stock market algorithms and the worries about stock market algorithms causing a, you know, a crash through reinforcing cell orders and such, like it happens. Um, yep. I mean, these are, these are systems that we worry about in the real world already. And the idea of articulating them to nuclear weapons is worrisome. Now let's take another step back in time and talk about their next option, equivalent danger, which just sounds like mutually assured destruction to me. It's not because it's even better. Um, oh it's boy. Actually, so yes. So my understanding of the way they're phrasing that is they're arguing that by pressuring the Russians and the Chinese of whom we have, you know, we have 10 times as many nuclear weapons as the Chinese do sitting six miles away from me, but whatever, um, you know, that if we, also develop hypersonic systems and boost glide and presumably missile defense that we can also make them worry about decapitation. And then they'll come to the bargaining table and they reference the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which that's one way to interpret it. And it leaves out a lot. Um, the idea that by constructing a situation in which both sides 
have incentive to launch first based on uncertain or ambiguous warning information is a terrible fucking idea. Uh, and it almost got us into a nuclear war during Reagan, you know, um, like, no, thank you. <laughs> so, but their idea is they're going to build so many nukes that, that China, yeah, that China, and on the board, like, I know we did that, um, quite a few times and so did the Soviets. I mean, that's the whole reason that the Cuban missile crisis happened is having nukes close to borders and at home. But like, it, this all just seems like, you know what we should do to counter the nuclear threat in 2019? We should just go back to 1980. It's really bizarre to me that this got published, actually. Um, you know, there's an argument to be had about U.S. capabilities and nuclear command and control and its robustness in the face of potentially changing strategic right. And I'm talking like a defense intellectual here. There's an argument. There's a discussion to be had about that. This is not it. Um, <laughs> which is to say that the, the <laughs> authors, right? Eh, no, that's not, that's not where, I mean, even their assumptions in terms of that supposedly U.S. Um, decision-making time has been, you know, severely degraded. And like, yes, there are new challenges post, right? That's how it works. You and your adversary, potential adversary, you each try and, you know, but at the end of the day, um, we have spent an enormous amount of money, time and effort being sure that like, you know, basically almost no matter what, if you nuke us, we're going to nuke you back. Um, and I don't see that anything has changed in such a way that we should doubt in any significant manner that capability at this time or in the foreseeable future. Um, so, you know, in many ways I find this piece is, is a solution looking for a problem and a <laughs> terrible solution at that. It it sounds like they wrote this article and like, I, I think I said already, I assume these people come from the correct background. They both work in, in, in with nukes and nuclear theory and things like that. Um, they should know better. Yeah. It's like, it's like when my dog shits in the carpet, like you're six years old, yeah. you've been doing this for you. Like you should know better. Why are you doing yeah. this? Why are you the um, way that you are? It's rewarded, uh, you know, what defense company and we, we have, you know, it is a, it's, it's, it's kind of like mobile battlefield nuclear reactors, right? It's the zombie project that just never dies. Um, Wait, that's a that thing? no, we didn't, the Russians, the Soviets kind of did. I mean, mobile is a very loose term. <laughs> um, we did develop, in fact, this is, <laughs> this may be why we want to buy Greenland, right? Is that we left a little bit of a mess um, when we were doing project uh, Camp Century slash Project Ice Worm, where the idea was is that we would dig these tunnels in the ice and it would be nuclear powered. And, you know, when we left, we left some stuff behind and we figured, oh, the ice will take care of it. And now the ice is melting. Uh, By stuff, whatever. do you mean horrible nuclear waste? I think it's mostly chemical and toxic, but ah, I haven't looked. I guess it could be worse. Look on the bright side. It could. I mean, <laughs> we turned that. We only turned this large swath of land into a super fun site. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you know, it's a small thing, um, relatively, except it's not. And you know, we thought it would be be gone for forever. So this is that same sort of like fallacy of the last move thinking that I find really prevalent in amongst defense intellectual. You know, that sort of. I mean. Okay, I participate in it too, so guys. Um, but, right, that sort of abstraction, but also the idea that, like, if I do this, this will get me security, right? 
Um, but your adversary is going to adapt and respond. And this is part of the issue with ballistic missile defense is that it's generally cheaper um, to get past your defensive system than it is to upgrade your defensive system. Yeah, just just and, let them just let them nuke us. We'll be okay. We'll yeah. nuke them back. Well, so this is kind of right. This is the fundamental paradox of of nuclear deterrence, in part, or one of the fundamental issues is that we don't like being vulnerable in that sense. Um, you know that Donald Trump or Vladimir, well, Donald Trump, pretty much unilaterally, and Vladimir Putin with one or two other people could end the world as we know it. Right? That makes me very uncomfortable. I don't like um, it. I'm not a fan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, and the system is theoretically stable only in a situation of mutual vulnerability. If you accept the sort of realist position that, right, the state is always trying to fuck over other people and so on. Um, you know, and as you know, because we've talked before, right, at the end of the day, like, I think this, this is a shit system that we really should change. And I realize that to a lot of people that sounds very utopian, but your other option is that eventually something is going to go terribly, horribly wrong and we're all going to die terribly. Um, I mean, it really seems like we've invented this a system where the entire world is playing like Russian roulette. So this is one thing I, I, I don't think Americans realize is the extent of annoyance um, during the Cold War by other countries with regards to our willingness to risk everything over stuff that may not seem to them important or really be that important. Um, you know, because even if we're not directly nuking you in the collapse of global trade networks and potential climactic effects and all that, and of course Europe would just be a, you know, smoking radiating glass wasteland. Uh, and so I think about that sometimes when India and Pakistan are kind of going at each other. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people don't realize that if one if one nuke goes off now, the world is fucked. I mean, a couple dozen, and I'd say we'd start to. It depends, but yeah, you know, it's when a ball pen is made in three different countries, right? And I mean, oil I just, and I just don't see a situation now where a nuke could go off and it doesn't cause like this feedback loop of escalation. You know, I mean, I tend to. I tend to think that it would be very difficult to, there are scenarios where I would see like, you know, North Korea and the United States. I mean, it's hard to think of a way that we would, that China wouldn't get involved somehow. Right. Um, and if you start nuking North Korea, you know, or like what, what's the state of their early warning these days? You know, not that it, so China, if they still keep warheads unmated to missiles, which may or may not have changed with their move to um, at sea deterrent, you know, patrols. You can't have an accident where you think, okay, somebody just launched a nuke at me. Is it going to North Korea or at me? Better fire it off now, right? Their entire position, um, although it may be changing, and people have argued about it for a while, has been fairly relaxed. That, like, okay, we'll have strategic warning of possible nuclear war and we'll have time to move stuff around a little bit so that if they try and nuke us, we'll have a, you know, assured retaliatory capacity. And they do that. You know, the, the Chinese have like two or 300 warheads total. Yeah. I always we assume had, they had more. Yep. Uh, they, you know, they dismantled their, um, FISMAT production facilities, which always kind of struck me as like, huh, interesting. They're starting, I believe, um, I believe that they have uh, enrichment capability at this point or never got rid of it. You know, you can you can scale that up. But like if the Chinese were to go for a quote unquote sprint to parity that everybody talks about, not everybody. But first off, who gives a fuck if they have as many nuclear weapons as we do? 
um, you know, that only really matters. Like if you perceive that having more nuclear weapons gives you some sort of leverage and it may or may not. Although I tend to say that like, once you've reached the point where you can both destroy each other's as, um, functioning societies, your leverage is pretty much gone. If you can destroy another city after that, you know, I think that's <laughs> something that the, uh, that the writers of this article actually fully believe. Uh, so yes. they said, uh, this is at the very, very end. Uh, U.S. adversaries are working on their own fate accompli that will leave the United States in a position where a capitulation to a new yep. geostrategic order is the only option. The United States cannot allow that. Yep. Fuck you. So, I mean, <laughs> and it's look, it's hard not to say that this isn't in part fueled by like some really racist yellow peril throwback shit. Um, while we're at it and fears about the United States losing its supposed predominant world position. And like, yeah. And, and the authors, as you point out, are very much invested, grounded in and expresses expressive of um, a particular belief in a particular political economy in which nuclear weapons are fungible assets that you can use to do stuff with, right. Other than kill millions of people, mostly civilians. You know, make you really happy. Is that oh, God. Dr. Adam Lothar is the director of research and education yeah. at the Louisiana Tech Research Institute, where he teaches deterrence strategy. He's had a he was at <laughs> um, I want to say Kirtland for a while as part of their nuclear weapons school. Um, I have in my prior encounters with his writing, I have I don't think I've agreed with what he's written yet, um, but I've never met him or. Uh, dealt with him in person, but I have not been impressed by his writing so far. Uh, I will have to echo that now since this is the only thing I've ever read that he has written. Uh, now, Curtis McGiffin is the associate... I've never heard of. I haven't either, but when you read his bio, it kind of makes sense of why he is kind of with Dr. Lothar here, uh, which, by the way, Dr. Lothar makes him sound like a fucking supervillain. Uh, I think it's pronounced Lothar. Oh, uh, damn it. Or Lowther, but in any case. Uh, so Curtis McGiffin is the Associate Dean School of Strategic Forces Study at the Air Force Institute of Technology and Adjunct Professor for Missouri State University's Department of Defense and Strategic Study, where he teaches strategic nuclear defense. Okay. I am going to get a lot of hate mail about this. Um, <laughs> so I'm really tempted not to say it. Go for it. <laughs> uh, how do I say this? Um... I have sometimes not always been especially impressed by some of the literature out of the defense universities and associated think tanks. Oh, no, you're you're uh, you're definitely in the right. Um, the podcast for that, because I think I've gone on record saying think tanks are a cancer. But, uh, so, you know, the, the defense uh, universities, I've had numerous people uh, tell me that they're. How do I say this? Um, their editing and guidelines are very, very, very low. Um, you said it. Yeah. I would, as, as, you know, some of it is very good work. Um, some of it is really thoughtful and well thought out. Not all of it. And this, this any comes from, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, I graduated from a college once, so. <laughs> I mean, what worries me, though, is, of course, the volume and the repetition and the institutional affiliation because it suggests that. Um, right. There are certain ways of thinking that are structurally endemic and that keep getting repeated. I, I would buy into that as well. I mean, it's like when you I mean, that's if, if your professors are writing stuff like this, 
they're teaching stuff like this, who then feed into the pool of people who will go on to write stuff like this. You know, it's it's a snake eating its own tail. As so Jacques Derrida, the post French post-structuralist thinker, um, and this is the only t- only thing I ever cite him for almost uh, reminds us that nuclear war is fabulously textual in the sense that short of having another one, other than the time we nuked Japan twice. Um, don't you know, don't worry about that little guy. Right. We always ignore that one as the, uh, okay. Or we point to it as though it somehow is exemplary of all future nuclear encounters. And it's like, not so much, yo. Um, but short of actually having a nuclear war, right. There's no way. And there's a, was a big issue for civil defense and remains one and for continuity of government, right? But short of having a nuclear war, you can't really say what it's going to be like. Um, and so that fabulous textuality allows for a lot of play with scenarios. And um, not all of it is grounded in consensual reality. And also, I mean, you know, scenario play is fun or there can be aesthetic pleasures to it. Um, have you ever played DEFCON? Oh, Yeah. 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 Right. When you fire off the nukes and you're about to kill 300 million people in the game, like absolutely, you know, and you can see the, the trails and such. I mean, there's certainly an aesthetic enjoyment to it. Um, or like Civilization, where Gandhi nukes you right? every 20 minutes. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> I've forgotten about that. It was actually. Oh. I love the story behind that. It was a bug. Yeah. That they just yeah. made mainline, that they accidentally made Gandhi a, a nuke-loving psychopath, yeah. and they just had to leave it in forever. I mean, it's terrible, but it's also funny. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, the civiliz- I love the Civilization games. I think that they have a great take on nuclear warfare, actually, um, which is that it fucks everything up and you shouldn't do it. <laughs> because anytime I stop playing, I want to say after civilization four. And I mean, if you used a nuke, you know, half the city population went away. It destroyed your farmland around it. Like it was a mess. Yeah. And I mean, the people who wrote this article are basing, I believe they're basing their concepts on a concept that is so outdated with weapons that are now several times stronger than the ones that they've ever seen used. Well, so the U.S. arsenal has, I mean, the the size of our weapons now is significantly smaller than it was even in the 70s and 80s. Um, And, oh, this is, sorry, this point just really filled me with rage. Um, (laughs) So, like, I have to mention this. So the the authors mentioned that, you know, supposedly we reassured the Soviets that we weren't going to target their leadership. This is fucking bullshit. Um, the United States. <laughs> no, I mean the United the States has agreement. <laughs> no, it is. It, it's just it's a. It's not historically supported. We brought the B fifty three nine megaton um, gravity bomb out of. We added it back into the stockpile explicitly to be able to target um, deeply buried, hardened bunkers. Soviet. Uh, the Reagan administration made a concerted effort to tell the Soviet leadership that we targeted them and that they were vulnerable. Um, I love that they bring that out as like, well, dead hand uh, only works because we'll totally promise not to, not to do a decapitation yeah, strike. Like it was. Who's That's fucking so buying? Who's fucking buying this shit? They're like, oh, and in the in the advent of you know nuclear apocalypse, when we're literally turning your civilians into shadows of themselves, we totally won't target you, bro. Right? It's and the idea is if you target, you know, who are you going to negotiate with? But as you point out, the hotline is, um, I mean, it's satellite and a landline, uh, and I think the only terminal is that. Oh, not the White House, you know, the military, where, uh, but there's just the one terminal. Um, 
Yeah, it's just and if so, if you are going to fight a nuclear war, um, and I don't recommend it, but if you are going to, I mean, your option, your best chance is to strike first, strike hard, um, attack leadership and weapons. Like Cobra Kai once said, <laughs> "Strike hard, strike fast. No mercy." Right. Um, I actually don't know what that's from, but I, from I know the Karate Kid. It. Oh, it's been a long time. <laughs> uh, but it is that's your only hope for damage limitation. But there, you know, the United States has recognized for decades now there is no hope of damage. Like this is the thing: nuclear war is not something you can fight and win. Yeah, um, everybody loses. Like, exactly. They're, even they're, if you win, even if you end the conflict on terms favorable to the United States, 10, 20 million dead tops, depending on the breaks, is a big fucking deal, to say the least. Um, you know, is it? Yeah. In any case, I mean, and we're past the point where we're having debates about or we should be past the point where we're having debates about like, oh, God, the Russians can roll across all of Europe if we don't have ta- you know, so-called tactical nuclear weapons to stop them. And yet somehow we're not. I, it's, I, it's very uh, mysterious I, I, to I me. I don't understand. I feel like defense people uh, go in a circle of history. Like they'll, they'll just like a great example is for years and years they talked about um, – like phasing out tanks and things like that. And they bring them back and they'll phase them out and they'll bring them back. And they're and they're now they're doing effectively the same thing with nuclear technology and warfare. Like, you know, that thing that uh, we thought we didn't need in the eighties. Well, yeah. Pluto and, uh, you know, the, uh, nuclear tip cruise missile. And I would offer that in part, the sort of circularity is right. We're, the the basic rules of the game, quote unquote, haven't changed, and we're going to keep doing that as long as we continue to organize the world around violence as an expression of power and might makes right. And like this is the world we've built, and the world that we'll keep building. And there's no technical solution to that, right? There's no fundamental safety in a world with nuclear weapons, biological weapon, right? I mean, it can be. I mean, there can't be there. There can never be true safety in a world where one unhinged lunatic could just end it all. Uh, yeah. So you know, my with that said, absolute safety is impossible. But we can at least make it so that we don't have a nuclear doomsday machine ready to fire twenty four seven three sixty five. Yeah, that's we, a good first step. We there should voluntarily make fucking Skynet. Like, if if there's one thing, that's that, a, yeah. yeah, if there's one thing anybody gets from this episode is fucking Skynet is bad, y'all. Right. Don't do it. I'm, unless it's literally going to fire off the nukes immediately, killing us all. Please, um, please, we welcome it. <laughs> right? Like, come on, you know, just just end it, end it. Uh, yeah, you know, Whopper. Um, and I actually think that's a great scene in war games where the general is like, and what does the computer recommend? And the computer recommends a full retaliatory strike and no shit. (laughs) That's what it's built to do. Right. And that's exactly, you know, that's what the same person would do. So, you know, in the actual, so don't get me wrong. Like these worries about decapitate, you know, the president is dead in the event of a nuclear war. Um, there are a couple of other things they talk about, right? Like this notion of, the more stealth cruise missiles you launch, the more likely they are to be detected before they detonate, right? Um, hypersonics. Uh, I'm, I wonder if anybody's researching stuff into like detection, long range detection of sonic booms and, um, and so on. But the more weapons that you launch, the more likely your chance of 
detection, right? So the idea that like three Soviet attack subs could park off the coast and fire off 300 nuclear tip cruise missiles without, you know, like, uh, probably not, yo. Yeah. Um, I'm going to lean even if they did, that. once again, we would still be able to nuke them back. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that we've spent years building or decades building is like, no matter what happens, the world is going to end. We'll make sure of it. Yeah. Um, that yeah. kind of brings us full circle back to like, I guess in closing, we can, I'll ask you, why do you think they wrote this? Um, so that's, uh, uh, as always, I speak for myself. Um, of course. You know, no. I mean, there are many reasons why people write a, an article, including that I assume that they believe, you know, I will give them the dignity that they believe this batshit idea. Um, <laughs> right. But, no, but from a, you know, from a certain perspective, it makes a certain degree of sense, maybe kind of, um, you know, and also it is provocative. People are talking, right? We're not, we're talking about something we weren't talking about last week. Um, that is fair. You know, they get us talking uh, about how dumb they are. Well, you know, there's some Overton window stuff, but here's the thing. Yeah, that article true. is not necessarily aimed at us. So this is, you know, the thing that happens like when I look at um, nuclear weapon laboratory advertising from the 60s, right? Who is that aimed at? Uh, and in this case, that article is not aimed at you and me, right? It creates, um, it sort of helps to define a problem, to create a set of analogies and metaphors that can be used by other people, Right. It's a way of um, signaling. It can help build group. It can help build a point of focus around which people then talk, etc. So one of the things that drives me about these conversations is, of course, they never end um, because we're usually talking or oftentimes talking past each other for different audiences. And if, you know, you were to go up to the authors and be like, hey, that article was shit, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't get very far because y'all are, I and you are contrasting on some very different assumptions about the world. That's fair. Uh, yeah. And I actually invite both of them on to my show so I could say your article sucked. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've done that on Twitter to people and I don't so much anymore, um, you know, and uh they usually don't see it in my experience. Yeah, it's, right? it's weird how they disagree on those fundamental facts that the writing is garbage. Right? <laughs> um, where it's not like everything I've ever written is trash, and I know it. You know, I, I uh, mean, I would agree on my own writing as well. But yeah, it's so. Uh, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you for being my go-to nu- nuclear outrage expert. Uh, it's, it's always glad. It's always great to have you on my pleasure. Um, we'll get you some more names too, uh, for <laughs> new people. So you have an assortment, so you don't just have to go with me. You're always welcome to, uh, do you have anything you'd like to plug before we go? Oh, let's see. Uh, my Twitter of course is at nuclear anthro. My links to my Patreon and my PayPal are of course in there. I would also point out that I maintain an online collection of some like 16 or 17 gigabytes of declassified documents and records which have been provided to me through the Freedom of Information Act and other research objects. So if you like to search for Martin Pfeiffer um, nuclear weapon national security archive or something like that, it'll show up and it's a resource for everyone to use for free. Thank you, and I look forward to being able to get you on the show and introduce you as Dr. Pfeiffer, so good good luck with that, sir. 
two years, maybe, maybe. All right. Hopefully. Thank you. Pleasure as always, sir. Yeah. Have a good one.